We'll be reading this morning from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we will read verses 1 through 5. John 1, 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, it is December, and once again, the minds of many are turned to the birth of our Savior. And we will no doubt be reminded more than once this month to remember the reason for the season. You've heard this. Remember that Jesus is the reason for the season. And that's a good reminder to us. Christmas has become a very commercial holiday in America. And for many Americans, it's not even a religious one any longer. It's a time of tradition and nostalgia, of family gatherings, parties, gifts, and Hallmark movies. And so the reminder to remember Christ as the reason for the season is a good reminder to us. But I'm afraid that even in that reminder, sometimes we lose sight of just what it is that we are to remember about Christ Yes, he was born as a baby and laid in a manger, visited by shepherds. But what of it? Why was he born? Who was he? And what was his purpose in coming to earth? Well, in the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, we we find a narrative of the birth, and we'll look at this passage in a few weeks, but it says in chapter 1 of Matthew, verses 22 and 23, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So all month we will be exploring different aspects of what it means that Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. What does it mean? What does it accomplish that God is with us? And this morning our focus will be on the first word of that phrase. What does it mean that God is with us? Now, this may seem rather obvious to you. If you're a Christian, you've been in church for any length of time, but it is far from obvious to many. The Muslims acknowledge that Jesus was a real historical person, but they believe him to be a prophet and not God. The Mormons believe that he is the Son of God, but not God himself. The Jehovah Witnesses confess him to be a God, but not the God. Many secular people are happy to call him a great moral teacher, but reject his claims to divinity. So our doctrine this morning is simply this, Jesus is God. Our doctrine is the deity of Christ. But to put it more specifically, 
What I want us to see this morning is that Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. For he is the fullness of God, holy, eternal, and omnipotent. So we need to begin with the promise of Emmanuel in the Old Testament, God with us, before we look at our text in John 1. Matthew quotes that passage from Isaiah chapter 7, and, and we read this this morning already, but in, in chapter 7 of Isaiah, Judah is under attack by multiple enemies. Their enemies have sort of ganged up on them. And the king and all of the people are fearful. It says in chapter 7, verse 2, that their hearts were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. If you've ever been in the woods during a high wind, you know what this is saying, that the trees sway back and forth, creaking and groaning because of the wind. And, and so what the passage is saying is that the hearts of the people of Judah were like that. They were swaying back and forth one way and another with fear, not knowing what to do or where to turn because of their enemies. And so the Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to speak with the king and to tell him that the plans of their enemies won't stand, that they won't come to pass. Why? Because God will be with his people. And to give assurance of this word, he tells the king to ask for a sign. Now, the king refused to ask for a sign, as we read this morning. He, he, he said he didn't want to test the Lord, and that sounds very pious, but God had just told him to ask for a sign, so he was actually being disobedient. And in refusing to ask for a sign, the Lord chooses the sign. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which is the verse Matthew quotes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The prophecy then continues in the rest of chapter 7 and into chapter 8 of Isaiah, announcing the demise of their enemies. And this child that was prophesied in chapter 7, verse 14, is the same son that is then spoken of in chapter 9, a son who will rule and reign, who will sit in judgment over the nations. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with just judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Both of these passages, which we've read this morning, they're familiar to us. We recognize them. We read them around Christmas time. We understand that they are promises of the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. But notice that it says this son is not only the prince of peace. We, we understand that a son would be a prince. But it also says he is the mighty God. He is, in fact, the everlasting Father. And in chapter 8, in between these two passages, the term Emmanuel is used two more times in reference to God himself being present with his people in his glory filling the whole earth. 
So the promised son is the promise of God with us, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace with his people. And remember that the context of Isaiah, only one chapter earlier in Isaiah chapter 6, it gives us a picture of who this God is. There, it's a passage we're familiar with. Isaiah has a vision of the throne room in heaven. God's presence fills the temple. And the seraphim cry out continually, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this thrice holy God is the God who is with us. Emmanuel, Elohim, God with us. God, the Almighty, the Eternal One, the ruler of all creation, the one whose glory cannot be contained. It fills the heavens and the earth. The Lord of hosts who is holy, holy, holy. The child to be born of a virgin is said to be that God. And if we wonder how, how can Christ's birth be a sign for King Ahaz 800 years later before Christ is born? How can this be a sign to give Ahaz hope in the face of multiple enemies attacking Judah? Well, Christ is the promised seed who would defeat the serpent from Genesis 3. He is the promised seed of Abraham and who all the nations would be blessed. He is the promised seed of David who would sit on the throne and rule forever. He is the promised Messiah. And this promise meant that God would deliver Judah from her enemies because he would keep his promises of a Messiah from the line of David. So the sign was not just a a promise to Ahab, of present deliverance from their enemies, but it was a promise to God's people of a preservation of Judah and of the line of David since it was not possible that the kingdom should fail until the word of God was fulfilled. And then once fulfilled and once the Messiah from the line of David had come, a much greater deliverance was in view at that point. Deliverance from the lies of Satan from the curse of the law, from the bondage of sin. The promise of Emmanuel, God with us, is a very great promise indeed. The name Emmanuel, which means God with us or with us Elohim, is the entire point of Jesus' birth. Our sin alienated us from God. Jesus came to fix that. He came to bring us to God, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus came in order to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins, and by satisfying the justice of God, He restored our relationship with God. We're completely incapable of satisfying God's justice. And so God had to enter the human world, live a perfect life, die the perfect death in order to be a propitiation for our sins. And a propitiation simply means to appease 
God's wrath, to satisfy his justice. That's the entire point of the incarnation. God in the flesh doing what we could not do for ourselves in order to work our atonement, to redeem us from our sin, and to rejoin us in relationship with our Maker. So now we're ready to look at our text in John 1. But as we begin, it might be helpful to answer a question concerning the Gospel of John. And that question is this. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John wrote his last, and so the question is why? Why write another biography of Jesus when there are already three good ones? Well, part of the answer is that each of the four Gospel writers had a different immediate audience and a different purpose in their writing. Matthew wrote primarily to a Jewish audience, and he he traces Jesus' claim to the throne of David through his family lineage and his connections uh, to Abraham and David. And you can see that at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew talks about the kingdom more than any other gospel by a huge margin. John mentions the kingdom three times. Matthew speaks of the kingdom 54 times. You can see Matthew was concerned with reaching a Jewish audience with the message of Christ. Mark wrote to the Romans. He was in Rome. Rome was the center and the seat of political and military power in the entire world. He mentions more miracles than any of the other Gospels do. His account is short. It's fast-paced. It's concerned with the authority and the power of Christ Mark is showing that Jesus has authority over everything, including the Roman emperor. Luke writes as a doctor, as a physician, and as a historian. His intent is to be accurate, detailed. He wants to put things in chronological order. He's especially concerned to show that Jesus was a human, that he was one of us. John's audience, however, is different. His purpose is different. John is writing to those who speak Greek. These are people who are spread out throughout the vast Roman Empire, but they are thinkers. Unlike the Romans who are are men of action, the Greeks were philosophers. So John includes a lot less action and a lot lot more dialogue, less doing, more talking. And Greeks would love this, right? They want to know what Jesus said, what he taught, what his ideas were. When Alexander the Great conquered the world, he spread the Greek culture, including the Greek language, everywhere. Well, when Rome later conquered the world, they spread their military and they built roads. But the Greek language remained. Everyone still spoke Greek. Many Jews were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and a lot of them began to speak Greek rather than Hebrew. So somewhere around 200 B.C., a group of Jewish scholars began to translate the the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so that the people who only read and spoke Greek could read the scriptures. They finished this project in about 130, 132 B.C. It became known as the Septuagint, which means 70. It took them about 70 years to complete the translation. And, And so John knows that his audience speaks Greek, they think like Greeks, And as they read the Old Testament scriptures, they are reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So as John writes, he knows these things about his audience. He knows they grew up as Greeks, trained in Greek thinking and philosophy. 
and he knows that this is the translation of the scripture they're reading. Now, Greek philosophy, starting in about the 6th century with a guy named Heraclitus, had this idea that the material universe, everything that we can see, that we can touch, that we can experience, he looked around it and he came to the right conclusion that this is orderly. This is not random. Something put all of this in order. It didn't happen by accident. And so he concluded that there must be some sort of logical reasoning force behind the world as we know it. And since logic involves thinking and ideas, and thinking and ideas are, take shape when we speak them in words, Heraclitus called this logic behind the universe the word or the logos. For the Greeks, this word was an impersonal, unknowable, universal reason or logic behind the material universe, giving everything order out of chaos. Now, the Greek Stoic philosophers, who the Apostle Paul later deals with in in the book of Acts, they, they went a bit further and they said that the word, as it ordered everything, left little bits of itself behind. And so all people have this spark of the word, of the divine, within them. But it's still impersonal and unknowable. It's just a a force. So that's the Greek philosophical concept of the universe, of the world. So now let's look at what John says in the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So John takes this Greek concept of the word as the ordering force behind the universe and he ties it to the Hebrew God. He says this this word, this logical reasoning force behind the universe, it's not impersonal. It's not unknowable. It's God. It's the God who has spoken in the scriptures. And he uses the exact language of Genesis 1 in the beginning. We've recently finished an exposition of Genesis, and so we recognize this language as the opening line of the Old Testament. And we read in Genesis 1 of God's creative genius in forming the world. And in Genesis, it is God's word that gives shape to reality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Then in verse 6, then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. In verse 9, then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. In verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And you get the idea. The narrative continues. God speaks and things happen. So John casts our minds back to Genesis 1 and he uses this biblical idea of God speaking creation into order and he weds it to the Greek idea of the word, the logos, that orders the universe. And so his Greek readers are getting hit from both directions 
in John's first six words. The concept they grew up with as the logos, the word, has now been enlarged and expanded for them. The word isn't just some impersonal force that they can't know. The word is the God who has spoken in the Hebrew scriptures. But then John goes a step further and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So this word is somehow, it's there in the beginning with God as the active voice of God in creation and ordering all things, but at the same time, it's distinguished from God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, if we tried to think through this as philosophers, we might try to avoid any problems with what John is saying here by by concluding that the Word was God's voice, and when God spoke, His Word went out from Him with great creative power and energy, And, and so that's all he's saying. But John continues in verse 2, and he says, He was in the beginning with God. Well, now the Word is a He. It's a person. It's not just an impersonal force. It's not just God's voice. It's it's a personage. It's a distinct person. He is with God, but he is God. And so people try to figure this out, and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons will step in here, and they'll start talking about uh, definite and indefinite Greek articles as if they understand the language, and they don't. They have a script that they've been taught And they've memorized it, and so when they speak with people who are not of their faith, they just parrot back this script. But they'll quote from that script and and tell you that the Greek should be translated to read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And they'll sound very convincing and knowledgeable when they tell you this. What they'll explain is that Jesus is an exalted angel. Uh, He's not... God. He's a created being. Now, the best Greek scholarship in the world will tell you they're wrong. But you don't need to know Greek if you're in a conversation with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. All you need to do is to keep reading because John continues to write, and he writes verse 3, "...all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made." So if you're ever in a conversation with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness who insists that Jesus is not God, that he is a created being of some sort, or even a Muslim who believes that Jesus was a prophet but not God, you lean on verse 3 with all your might. Everything that is in the category of made was made by the Word who is Christ. That means that he can't be made because then he would have had to have made himself, and nothing can't turn itself into something. It's, it's a basic law of logic. It's called the law of non-contradiction. A thing can't be and not be in the same relationship at the same time. The word couldn't not be and then be made, and at the same time be the maker of all things that are made. It just doesn't work. John has closed all the doors and shut all the windows. There is no way around this claim that the Word is God. 
It's distinct from God, and yet it is eternal, unmade, personal. The Word is God. John is shattering myths and pulling down strongholds that have set themselves against God. He's not leaving any room for Greek philosophy or mysticism or false Christology. The Word is a person. He is absolutely divine. He is the all-powerful creator of everything. Even the Stoic philosophy of the divine spark in every person is put to rest here because John has so closely tied this account to Genesis. We must go back to Genesis to see how the Word made mankind. We've already seen that God created by speaking, but when we get to Genesis 1.26... Something is different. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here we see God in plural. These are verses that we use Uh, to help us understand the Trinity, even in creation. Here is the three in one, the Trinity. But God says to himself that he will create man in his image. It doesn't say that he spoke man into existence. Genesis 2, 7 then tells us, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living, living being. So we're made in the image of God, like a shadow is in the image of the thing that makes it. But God didn't speak us into existence by his word. He shaped us from the ground and then breathed life into us. This effectively closes the door to the Greek Stoics. They can't say that the word left a little bit of himself in us such that we have the spark of the divine within us. He has shaped us in his image, but he didn't word us into existence. Now, just because John closed that door doesn't mean that the lie has done, been done away with. It still makes its rounds today. It has ever since Genesis 3. Satan came along in Genesis 3 and he said to Eve, listen, God is holding you back. If you take this fruit that he has commanded you not to eat, you'll become like God. You'll be divine. You won't need God anymore. God won't be able to hold you back anymore. You're not going to die. You'll be a God. He can't enforce that against you. Now, this lie took a slightly different shape with the Greek Stoics, but it was the same idea. You can be God. And this idea is still making its rounds today. The pop culture spirituality of America involves vague talk about the divine spark inside of you or how your words have power to shape reality. You can speak a better life for yourself. That's just Satan's lie repackaged for 21st century Americans. And that's all that pop culture spiritual gurus, Jehovah's Witnesses, or Mormons have got to offer, a repackaged lie about how Jesus is no better than you are. You can become a God. The truth is, you were created in His image, but not in His divine nature. Not in in that way. We were shaped, not physically, in the image of God, 
not in nature as divine, but the essence of what makes us human reflects the one who made us. We're made with moral reasoning, with souls, spiritual souls. We're made in the image of God, but not shaped from the same stuff that God is made of. Now, this particular lie showed up in the early church as a heresy known as Arianism. Arius taught that Jesus was a created being, that he was not the eternal God. In response, the Nicene Creed was produced to summarize the Scripture's teaching on the nature of God, particularly the divinity of Christ. And it says this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. See, the creed insists that Christ is of the same substance as the Father, not the same sort of substance, but the very same substance. Our confession picks this idea up and says it this way. It says that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are, quote, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. So Christ, as the Son, as the Word, has the whole divine essence. He's not one part of God. He's not simply made of the same stuff that God is made of. He is God in His fullness. He is the fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, because He is the fullness of God. The Word is God. Yet it is distinct from God. The Word is the Creator, and the Word is a person. John then says in verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So he's now telling us that the Word is the source of life. Remember that in Genesis, God breathed the breath of life into man, and he became a living being. And that, that breath of life has as its source Christ Later in verse 14, which we'll look at next Lord's Day, John tells us that the Word became flesh. He became a man at a specific point in time and history, and his name is Jesus, John tells us in verse 16. But in Acts 3.15, Peter tells us that this Jesus was the author of life. The author of life. John says in verse 4, in him was life. That's why death couldn't hold him. He's the author of life. He wasn't subject to the authority of death. It is subject to him. And even when he was killed in the flesh, he conquered death and the grave. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light. It is in His light that we see everything else. If we see the beauty of creation around us, if we see any goodness at all in this life, it is by His light in our souls that we are able to recognize the beauty of what He has made, the beauty of His salvation, the beauty of His image in man. 
It's a banner over all of creation that shouts aloud with the joy of the glory of its creator. And again, John is going back to Genesis 1 for imagery here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. The creation was shrouded in darkness until God spoke, and once the word went forth, light overcame the darkness. And we find that in our day, the world is a dark place once again. Sin has corrupted everything. It casts a shadow of a cloud over everything, blocking out the light of God in the lives of men. And with the darkness of sin came death, the opposite of life. Life and light are bound together inseparably in Scripture and in nature. But notice what John says in verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, or it might be translated into the darkness, does not overcome it. Now, this is a huge shift here from verses 1 through 4 to verse 5. Verses 1 through 4 read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made, and in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's all past tense. These are things that happened in the past. Christ has not stopped. He's not ceased to be the Word, but verses 1 through 4 are looking back at the creation as something that happened at the dawn of history. But then verse 5 says, and the light shines in the darkness. He switched to present tense. The light shines now. Verse 5 isn't just some theoretical discussion about Greek philosophy any longer. This isn't just a history lesson. This is now. Jesus is for us now. Life and light. That light shines today because he lives. We serve a living Savior. He's conquered death. The light shines and the darkness has not overcome it. But there's a conflict that we see between light and darkness. The darkness wants to overcome the light, but it can't. It doesn't. John uses this theme of light throughout all of his writing, throughout his gospel, throughout his letters. Just listen to these three verses from the gospel of John. John 8, 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. In John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is the light. And if we believe, we will no longer be in darkness, but will become sons of light. Now, notice he doesn't say sons of the light. He says, sons of light. It's the light of Christ that shines in and through us, lighting the way for others to see the beauty of Christ. Just as the light was not lost in the darkness on that first day of creation, so the light of Christ 
has not been overcome by the darkness of a sinful world. The light that God made in Genesis enlightened the world. It ruled both day and night. Just so, the light of Christ brings spiritual enlightenment to those who believe in him. The connections between John 1 and Genesis 1 hint at Christ's incarnation as the dawn of a new creation. He is the firstborn, the light and the life, who gives life to a whole host of sons, those who believe. As I said earlier, the world around us appears to be a place of darkness. And if you watch the news, it'll look like it's getting darker all the time. Our society here in America seems to be gaining speed as it runs away from the light of God towards the darkness of sin. Our culture celebrates darkness. Look at the celebrations that surround Halloween. A few years ago, Time magazine ran a cover story that featured an empty railroad track running into a dark tunnel. No light at the other end, just darkness. And the title was Finding God in the Dark. And the subtitle of the story was this, Beyond Enlightenment, Acclaimed Preacher Argues That Strength, Purpose, and True Faith Are Found in the Shadows. Now, this preacher had previously written uh, that they were leaving Christianity behind. And now in this article, they were telling people that true faith is found not in the light, but in the darkness. So from a spirituality of darkness to the celebration of sin, the culture that we live in is overcome with darkness. That's why verse 5 is so important Because of verse 5, we can have confidence that the light will go on shining and the darkness will not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John says in his first epistle in 1 John 2.8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is what Jesus accomplished by his death and his resurrection. He triumphed over sin and darkness. Why did he do that? John says it was so that he could give his people the light of life. How was he able to do this? How was he able to accomplish this massive goal of defeating death, defeating human sin, overcoming the darkness of this world? It's because he is the thrice holy, almighty, eternal God the creator of all things, the author of life. John makes it clear that all created things have their origin in him, but that he was in the beginning with God and as God. The difference between God and his creation is not a quantitative difference. It is a qualitative difference. In other words, God is not merely older than creation, Rather, by virtue of his being the eternal God, he's an entirely different sort of thing. We think about age, the age of the earth, or, or our age as we grow older. God doesn't grow older. God isn't old. God is eternal. It's a complete difference. He is entirely different from his creation. He is eternal, immutable, 
perfect in every way. His being is in and of himself. All other things came into existence at some point by the power of his word. God is altogether distinct and qualitatively different than all other things. He exists necessarily because he is God. Everything else exists contingently, dependent upon his will, not only to create, but to sustain. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, for he is the fullness of God, holy, eternal, and omnipotent. And that is gloriously good news. There is no human who can redeem himself from the curse of sin. We are all born into it. We are all sinners who have rebelled against our Creator, who have offended Him, violated His law, and deserve death. This is why Jesus' birth happened the way it did, a virgin conception and birth, in order to show us that His human nature was something new. It was like the human nature that Adam originally had and not inherited from Adam the way ours is. He didn't inherit a sinful human nature. He was given a a perfect, sinless human nature. He is the second Adam, as Paul calls him in Romans. We are the image of God, but he is God in the flesh, God with us. Not just a great moral teacher with us, not just an angel or some other created being with us. He is the eternal, holy, righteous, almighty, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God with us. The purpose of his coming was to be a perfect, sinless sacrifice to atone for the sins of the elect, that he might redeem us from the curse and bring us to God. As the apostle wrote in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. No sinful man could be an atoning sacrifice for the sins of others because he couldn't even atone for his own sins. It had to be a perfect, sinless man. And for that to happen, that humanity, that human nature needed to be joined to the eternal all-powerful and perfectly righteous God so that he could live a sinless life and die a perfect death. So this year, when you are reminded that Jesus is the reason for the season, don't let that just simply be a, a sentimental feeling about a baby in a manger, but rather let it remind you that God is with us, that he might redeem us from the curse of the law, free us from the bondage of sin, and give life and light to a new creation. Let's pray.